0: Exploring Mormon Thought features discussions about Mormon doctrine and theology that correlate with topics in the book series of the same name written by scholar and theologian Blake Osler. Welcome to the first episode of Exploring Mormon Thought. I'm going to be your host, Corey Osler. My father, Blake Osler, is a well-known Mormon theologian and scholar, in addition to being a full-time attorney. Over the years, he has written several articles for scholarly Mormon publications such as Dialogue, Farms, Sunstone, Element, and many more. In 2001, his first book of a series was published. The name of the series of the books is Exploring Mormon Thought, and we've taken that name and put it on this podcast. So far, there are three published books under that name and another sort of lone book called Fire on the Horizon. I understand that he has even more books already planned to be released in the future, maybe already written. As a brief history of why we're doing this podcast, uh, I decided to make audiobooks of my father's books. And doing the audiobooks, I've come up with a few questions and things that I wanted to discuss. And I just thought, I'm probably not the only one that would find this interesting. And so I decided to make this podcast so we can kind of go over it. And the goal here is uh, to take the complex issues in these books and discuss them in a way that makes sense to the average listener. So this is sort of going to school, if you will, for me on a lot of these issues and topics. So for the most part, we're going to go through the books chapter by chapter with each book. And we're going to start with the first book, which is called The Attributes of God. However, for this first episode, I wanted to start off with kind of a get to know you for my dad, Blake Uh, we just I want to learn about his background, journey, and motivations for writing these books in the first place. Anyway, so he's on the line with us now, so how you doing?
1: Well, I'm always doing great.
0: Well, good. Um, so, yeah, if you want to just kind of give a brief introduction to kind of who you are.
1: Okay. I'm the second of six children. I uh, was uh, raised in Sandy, Utah at a time when it was going from about 7,000 residents to 75,000 residents in the course of about 10 years. I grew up about four blocks from my grandmother, and uh, if you want to know where it is, those who are familiar with this area, if you go to the 90th South Track Station and go take the first right going east, I was five houses up, just uh, the other side of the railroad tracks. And we had a canal just behind my home, railroad tracks just behind my home, and uh, lots of open land. And uh, to the east, there was not much except for uh, open fields going to the mountains. So I grew up running free. I uh, went to Sandy Elementary School and Jordan High School. Um, I graduated in 1976, went to Brigham Young University, As a freshman for one semester, went on a mission to Milan, Italy, returned, and two and a half years later, graduated with degrees in psychobiology, now it would be called neurophysiology, and also a degree in philosophy. I did some graduate work in neurophysiology, and then went to the University of Utah Law School. And I uh, took a, a degree with a specialty degree as well in jurisprudence. And I began practicing law in 1985 and have been practicing since. I do a number of things in law. I do constitutional law, commercial litigation, education law. Um, but I I become a, an expert in whatever my clients have a case that I'm doing. It's extremely interesting, and I'm one of the few people I know that is an attorney that actually loves being an attorney. I have taught also at Brigham Young University. I co-taught several classes while at the University of Utah with Sterling McMurrin in History of Philosophy. I taught um, several classes with David Polson and taught uh, also at the BYU Extension Salt Lake Center, taught a total of 10 classes there. Um, co-taught a class at um, Utah State University and have been guest lecturer at Yale, Notre Dame, and University of Colorado. In addition to those universities, so that's the background.
0: I understand you're you're not a convert. You were your parents were members of the LDS Church. Is that correct? I'm, I'm just kidding. I'm your son. I know that. So yeah, that's correct.
1: Of course, you know that. I, there was a period of time during which my, my father was was somewhat to fully inactive um, as a member. My mother was always active and had been Relief Society president for as long as I could remember. And grew up in a, in a household. My, my older brother was always active and teaches religion at BYU. And all of my siblings are, and I, as far as I know, always have been active. We all saw with one eye, regardless of the fact that around the dinner table, we argued about theology incessantly and vociferously.
0: Interesting. All right. So other than being born into it, why do you choose Mormonism? What do you, what do you find fulfilling in it?
1: What, you mean presently in my life?
0: Yeah, or just, you know, as, as you've gone through your life and your education, you've no doubt found out about many things, but yeah, like what? What attracts you to Mormonism in general?
1: Well, obviously it's the it's the Church of my of my youth, and so it's natural that I would be first attracted to that, and it proved to be not merely satisfactory but very fulfilling for me. Um, I had some foundational spiritual experiences when I was fourteen years of age. That kind that that kind of actually did solidify my commitment to mormonism and i have not notwithstanding the fact that my faith has has gone through transformations had many challenges it has basically remained intact since that period of time in my life when i had a series of experiences that were you know life transforming for me i was pretty young to go through them after going through those at 14 i um i learned about evolution I learned about it in an interesting way. In my sophomore English class, we had to write a research paper. And I, I had just the summer before gone through all of these spiritual experiences that solidified my commitment. And I began on a research paper to disprove the. Um, in order to do that, I read Joseph, Smith, Joseph Fielding Smith's Man is Origin and Destiny. And I began studying about evolution in general. I went through somewhat of a faith crisis because I came to the conclusion, and you have to remember when this was. I mean, Joseph Fielding Smith um, had been the prophet. And I'm reading his book, and I came to the conclusion that he didn't know a darn thing about evolution, biology, geology, paleontology, and the kinds of sciences that one ought to really know about in order to make pronouncements about evolution and became convinced that evolution was the best explanation for the evidence. I was very young going through this, but I arrived at all these conclusions. And so the question for me is how is it possible that I have had these experiences that um, in my experience had revealed to me that Joseph Smith was a prophet and that the church is God-inspired, and yet evolution is true. Joseph Fielding Smith had a kind of a neat syllogism. It is mean, if actually it was a reductio ad absurdum. And since there is no fall, then uh, there's no need for atonement. If there's no need for atonement, there's no need for Christ. And if there's no need for Christ, then everything's false. Which of course, you know, I, I saw through that, you know, kind of reasoning fairly quickly. But it seemed to me that um, I I was going to have to confront head on the fact that the way that some of the church leaders saw the church was not going to be something that worked for me and that I was going to have to find my own path. In some ways this became um kind of the you know, the very impetus for who I am and what I am. I literally ha- spent hours and hours and hours every day studying evolution, studying about biblical critical scholarship and Genesis and the Pentateuch became very aware of the JPD theories of of the Pentateuch and um, the documentary hypothesis, began to look at all of, really all biblical critical scholarship at that point. And I'm only a sophomore in high school, so it was a lot to take on. I learned about the same time that Joseph Smith had made changes to the what was originally the Book of Commandments when it was republished as the Doctrine of Covenants in 1835, and so I had to come to some resolution of how it is that words that God spoke could be improved in a in a new version. And then I uh, learned about the challenges that Egyptologists had issued to the Book of Abraham in 1912 with the Spalding um, affair, where um, an Episcopal bishop in Utah went to several world-renowned Egyptologists and had them give us their take on what the uh, facsimiles were. It was a very superficial take, but they were very happy to, to take on Joseph Smith and tell everybody that he was an idiot. And so I had to deal with all of that kind of stuff. By the time that I had graduated from high school, I I knew that I was on my own. Um, when I went to my bishop to discuss evolution, and while he was a pharmacist he really knew nothing about evolution or the kinds of issues that I was facing, knew nothing about critical biblical scholarship, didn't know about any of the changes that had been made to the revelations. I, I, by that time, by the time I graduated from high school, I had been through all of the stuff published by the tanners to that time, uh, Mormonism shadow or reality, the changing world of Mormonism. And so I had basically informed myself of, what was at that time the best take on, on the case against the church. And so I was in a world where virtually I was all alone dealing with issues that most people don't deal with until they have a much, much more mature brain than I had. Um, but my brain had to mature very quickly. <laughs> so,
0: So did you um, ask your parents, or are they just not the type of people that get that deep into that type of thing, or why, why did you feel so alone other than asking your bishop and realizing that he just wasn't
1: Well, it wasn't just my bishop. My mom and dad clearly were not prepared to address the issues that I was confronting. They knew nothing about it and couldn't really assist me, and so I couldn't address it with them. I knew I couldn't. My father is an intelligent guy, but he's a CPA, and to become a CPA, there's just not much that biblical scholarship that you really research. My mother is an angel, if ever there was one, but, you know, just not the kind of thing she was ever interested in. Um, it was just way beyond their horizon, and I knew no one. I would ask around. I'd kind of bring up the subject of evolution, and when I got the subject, you know, that's that, those are the kind of problems that people who think too much have. I knew that, the, you know, the people I was speaking with had no idea really what they were talking about. Um... You know, let alone addressing the. At that time, there was a a, a very strong um, push in New Testament scholarship to, you know, reinvent Jesus uh, and the social gospel, and um, there were many movements at that time. They were dealing with the form or the, I should say, the um, form critical analysis. They were dealing with.
0: Well, can you? Sorry, I just want to make sure this is accessible to all readers. So, when you say, let, "Let's," you know, assume that this is your average person at church. So, when you say biblical critical analysis, how's that different than what you do at Sunday school, for example, or what? What's what's the the difference there?
1: Well, they have nothing to do with each other. Um, biblical critical biblical scholarship is more in the nature of specialized. Um, ancient history, archaeology, um, textual studies, literary studies, um, and they're they're done with scholarly tools, and they have virtually nothing to do with Sunday school, except for the fact that now and then somebody might mention chasmus or something like that as a poetic device used in the Book of Mormon.
0: So they're they're trying to study the Bible kind of in its own context, in its own reference to time period, basically without. The religious overtones, I guess, or maybe they believe, but they're not looking for that necessarily? Is that kind of...
1: Well, my experience is that most people who get into biblical scholarship do so because they begin as believers. Many end up as non-believers. They treat the text as they would any other secular text and and uh, treat it as a means of exploring history. But I think it's fair to say that precisely because it is a religious text and so much is writing on both its meaning and... and dare I say, its facticity or historicity, that it may well be the most studied text in the history of the world.
0: I mean, you pretty much answered this, but there was a story that I know that you tell often, maybe people have heard if they know anything about you, but you mentioned the experience as a 14-year-old boy, and I know you have a story about the the movie Brigham Young. So if you kind of tell us, if you wouldn't mind telling us that story, of just kind of how, you know, your first big spiritual experience, I guess, is what I understand it to be.
1: Yeah, I was I was 14 um, on July 24th. They were showing the old um, Dean Jagger and, um, you know, the film about Brigham Young. Um, it had uh, a number of stars in it and was fairly well received in Hollywood. Of course, I knew nothing of that.
0: Vincent Price was in that, right, as Joseph Smith?
1: Yeah, Vincent Price was Joseph Smith and a pretty darn good Joseph Smith at that, except for he was a wild-eyed mystic in Vincent Price's hands. In any event, um, toward the end of the movie, it shows the the saints are starving. They've been through terrible deprivations, and they have re- they're rejoicing because they finally have a crop that they can harvest. And just as they think that they're going to have enough food that they can actually survive without starving, the crickets descend upon the uh, crops of the Mormon pioneers, and they're out there. The people are crying and. Brigham Young is so distraught, he says he's finally got to tell the people the truth that he's not really a prophet and never has been. And just as he rushes out to tell the people that he's not a prophet, the seagulls swoop down from heaven and save his bacon. And so he doesn't have to make this damning confession. But to me, it was nevertheless a damning confession because he makes the confession before he goes out to tell the people the truth. And I was thinking, well, if that's anywhere near the truth, why would I spend my life worrying about this kind of stuff? (laughs) Because if you thought he was a false prophet, he was in fact a false prophet, and I'm not going to waste my time with it. And so I went to my mom and and asked her, I said, where could I study more about Brigham Young? And wisely she said, oh, I don't know the Doctrine and Covenants, I suppose. And uh, Yeah, exactly. But... uh, So, you know, I didn't know anything about it, so I took 10 sections a day and began reading. That was my goal, and I met it every single day for 13 days. And, you know, as I read, I began to feel guilty for some of the things that I had done. Now, I wasn't old enough to have done anything really stupendously stupid, but, um, you know, I was pretty mischievous. And I remember getting on my knees and, and essentially saying, gee, I... I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm gonna do better. And I remember that I had the feeling come over me like I was just just purified. I felt like somebody was taking a brush with Ajax soap and cleaning me and scrubbing me from the inside out. And I felt like I was just light. A few days later, I had come to the conclusion in my reading by the way, that you know, I asked on every page, on every paragraph, on every sentence, with every word. What I was looking for was some clue as to whether Joseph Smith was in fact a real prophet or not. You know, nobody told me about Moroni's promise that I ever recall. I don't remember anybody telling me to go do this. I was just doing it. And I remember just trying to find out if there was some clue here that I could see whether or not he was really a prophet. And I had come to the conclusion that Joseph Smith would know whether he was a fraud or a real prophet. But I couldn't talk to him. I couldn't get inside his mind. And that knowledge died with him. And I couldn't really find an answer. But I was reading 7th, 8th, I don't know, ninth day, I don't remember exactly. I i felt my heart burning within me, and it was so clear, and I recognized what was happening. In my mind, it was just full of light, and, and I knew that I knew. It was just not, I was just a young kid, but I, I knew what I was experiencing. It was very powerful, and, and it was a direct answer to my prayers, because I had been, I mean, Almost with every breath, it's like, you know, help me find out what's going on here, and help me know if this is true. I took for granted that God exists, and uh, he's always been uh, very intimate to me, and in those moments, it was just I knew that I knew, and I didn't have to question whether I knew it wasn't wasn't something that you know, oh by really having this experience or gee, I wonder if that was a spiritual experience. It wasn't like that at all. I knew what I had experienced. And, uh, you know, I was only 14 and, and very young, but obviously I decided to, you know, that because the church was true, it was the most important thing in life, and I was going to devote my life to it and, and uh, live its principles and let it teach me the appropriate way to live a life. As I it here today, I believe I've been well served.
0: All right. So that's, yeah, that's kind of my next question. So I guess, you know, that this has served as a ground for you so that when you did encounter things like evolution, as you talked about, and learned about critical biblical analysis and the the problems there, um, did that kind of ground you? You knew you could always kind of fall back on that, or like you knew despite whatever you found out, you had that at least?
1: Yeah, my question was always, given what I've experienced, how can what I'm finding be true? How can I, or later on, how can I work this around in a way that I can understand both my ex, my life's experience in the context of what I'm now learning? And so, um, my life really has been faith seeking understanding. As it really is a life of how do I make this work for me in a way that it maintains my my intellectual integrity that maintains my commitment to the truth and that is true to what I know to be true. And how do I maintain all of that in a way that, that um, can be reconciled? Now, obviously I recognize that there are severe limitations to what humans can know and figure out. Um, we call those cognitive limitations. And, you know, there's a lot, not only that we don't know, but that we can't know. I mean, there's so much that's beyond us as human beings that I think uh, a good deal in, in, in philosophy, we call it epistemological humility. It's just a fancy way of saying we have to recognize our limitations and be humble in the face of our ignorance um, and honor that. That doesn't mean that we capitulate and don't study it. It doesn't mean we just throw in the towel and say, gee, we're so stupid, we can't figure this out. It means we do the best we can, but at the end of the day... Recognizing there is there's just a lot that uh, is beyond us, and even what we think we grasp um, is always subject to reassessment and and further study so it's a ongoing life of of learning and and but but I quickly learned that I love learning I quickly learned that I love studying I'm just the kind of guy that that does that i I taught myself to learn and study on my own, and I can't imagine anything that is more enjoyable, really. So,
0: All right. Interesting. All right. Another thing I want to talk about kind of is a, a sort of a new phenomenon, I guess, at least in the last 10, 15 years to a lot of people in the church. But from our private conversations, I know that you dealt with this early on, but a lot of people now are going on the Internet and finding out a lot about church history, and they are finding out that what they're learning in Sunday school isn't and probably never was meant to be the full story, but they're they're finding out things that are a little disconcerting to them. And I just wonder if you could talk about kind of your journey on how, well, first off, I assume you found out about a lot of things that you didn't know and, and kind of what your method was to find out more and where you went to find it.
1: Yeah, but because of my early experience, I mean, I couldn't go to a Sunday school teacher and expect answers, and I didn't I mean, I was never under the illusion that a Sunday school teacher was going to have all of the hours and hours and hours of study that I had done and hadn't asked the kinds of questions that I had asked. And it it seemed to me that it would be arrogant for me to assume that they had to have the same concerns that I did. not if they couldn't answer my concerns, somehow I was smarter than all of them. The fact is I just had different questions and I had a different journey and experience because I had studied intensely and I knew they hadn't. And because I'm at least a generation earlier than, than all of this information on the Internet, we had this. I had this advantage. Nowadays you get to the Internet, and I believe that one of the tactics that's used by people who want to destroy faith, and I think that is what they want to do, they just want to throw so much crap at you all at once that it is so overwhelming that people just throw their hands up in the air and say, there's just so much crap here, I can't deal with it. And it can't be true because there's so much crap.
0: <laughs> I think the uh, CES letter would be a very prime example of that. Like, oh, there's hundreds of issues. Rather than go through them, I'm just going to say there's so many that I can't even deal with it anymore.
1: Exactly. And when the CES letter is, it is so, I would say that it is a surfacy um, is one way of putting it shallow. It doesn't raise anything new. It's analysis of the existing issues is so sophomoric and, and just uneducated that it's it's really maddening to a person like me, and yet it, it, so much, and, and it, it was designed this way. It's like, well, what about this, 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 and this, this? Which I just went on the internet, and I'm just regurgitating everything I could put together, and, and that is the approach. The CS letter is, is kind of a prime example of this kind of, I'm just going to throw so much at the fan, something is going to stick, and there's nothing really of merit there that I can see. I mean, it really isn't worth the analysis and the and, and a response because there's nothing there that is worth dealing with at the level it deals with it, in my opinion.
0: How did you find out about the issues? that you, like how did you Because a lot of people didn't even know, they didn't know these things. So when you were finding out about them, did you read some anti-Mormon literature or something and then say, I better find out more about that? Or did you just stumble across it in your studies? And you're like, oh, that's interesting. Or how did you become aware of the major issues?
1: Yeah, most of what I stumbled across, I, I found out from... I knew, I found out from my studies, there had been an 1833 Doctrine or an 1833 Book of Commandments. And I had a, a book that had published them together with the 1835 Doctrine and Covenants. And I started looking at the sections that had been repurposed in the Doctrine and Covenants and found out they had been changed. I then looked and found that there were numerous changes in the 1837 edition of the Book of Mormon. So I had to deal with that. I just stumbled across that one. But I then, I can't remember, I I. Stumbled across a copy of uh, Mormonism: Shadow of Reality, which is kind of a companion put together by the Tanners, and started reading through it. Um, I was very lucky at the time because I, at least in my seminary, we had a number, we had a large library with a number of resources, and so I started reading all that stuff. And you know, all the stuff about the 1912 Book of Abraham controversy was published in the Improvement Era by the Church. All of the anti-Mormon stuff and the pro-Mormon stuff. It was, it was a period of remarkable openness. It really was. They published everything and gave it to the to the members directly. So
0: was this uh, David O.
1: McKay of the prophet at this time, or who was the prophet? Um, no, you're talking about uh, this was down
0: in 1912. You're talking about Joseph F. Smith. Oh, so you you just found the magazines that were published at that time? Okay. Yeah,
1: they were published at that time. But it it taught me that the church wasn't wasn't hiding anything. The church was willing to take it on at that time and, and simply deal with it. One of the charges that I ran into was where people telling me that the church was hiding the book of Abraham and its problems. And I knew dang well that they were just there of you know what the church had published decades before. Uh, and so those kind of charges didn't have any merit with me because every time I heard the charge, the church was hiding something. I could point them to a, something that the church itself had published um, or some publication by a faithful member that had published in, a, in an arena like BYU Studies or in another area, you know, where it had been addressed responsibly. So, you know, when these, I mean, the kinds of things like seer stones and, and uh, the way Joseph Smith translated the Book of Mormon and even the 1832 revision account, by the time I I I ran across it there had already been significant publications that the church had put together or or that it was you know were affiliated with the church that had addressed those issues. I read all of the issues of BYU studies. I read all the issues of dialogue and uh, when they came out I, I began Sunstone began when I was a little older, but you know and I read all of Nibley's works. I read his his books, Lehi the Desert, The World of Jaredites, since Kamora. Um, the world and the prophets. I, I found Nibley was uh, I really liked Nibley because he was a very intelligent person addressing some of these issues. When I was in high school, he published Joseph Smith, um, the Message of the Joseph Smith Papyri, which it turns out Nibley's argument is essentially well, yeah, what what we have in the Joseph Smith papyri is essentially the endowment as it was told in an Egyptian idiom, and so anybody who's been to Luxor knows that you know it's like wow, okay. <laughs> So uh, by the time that I had graduated from high school, I had read it, everything to that point, I think, that Nibley had published. I was blessed later to become one of his uh, research assistants, by the way. But uh, I was just fascinated by all of this stuff, and I really didn't worry. I mean, if I, if I didn't have an answer, it was up to me to come up with one. And here's the difference. And this is a bit aggravating for me, and maybe I'm not as patient and empathetic as I ought to be. Because I went through this, I knew that it was possible for a person to do this and essentially to do it on their own in a creative, faithful, and in a way that maintained integrity. When I see kids these days who have the attention span of a, of a tweet and to think that anything that is worth reading ought to be able to be put into a tweet – um, and they don 't have ready made answers for them by somebody else it It is disappointing to me i, I think it's endemic of an entire generation, and maybe that 's just the old guy coming out of me now i 'm fifteen years old but i i I seem to be, I find myself being impatient because they're thinking creatively they're not addressing the issues in a way that is given my entire life's experience. How do I make sense of this and in fact Instead of doing that, they urge people to approach it saying, just setting aside every spiritual experience I've had, now how do I look at it? Which to me is just such a self-deception and a self-deceptive way to begin to address the issue. It's, by the way, how most anti-Mormons suggest you address the issue. Forget everything you've experienced. Let's begin from here.
0: Well, that's my kind of next question. So what advice would you give? I mean, you've kind of already gone into this a little bit. What advice would you give someone, let's say, you know, they they haven't been aware of these things. Maybe they, you know, they read a church essay or those things they're coming out with and they realize there is a little bit more than they're being told and they never realized this before. So they go on the internet and they find some things that disturb them, I guess we could say, or seem to shake their current worldview a little bit. What advice would you have as they begin on their journey? Is there kind of like a a guiding principle that you would advise them to take or...
1: Yeah, faith ought to be transformational. Faith ought to be something that grows and changes as we grow. We we have one kind of faith as a child. We have another kind of faith as an adolescent. We have another kind of faith as young adults. We have another kind of faith as we raise children and gain experience as parents. Another kind of faith as we as we move beyond that. I now have grandchildren, and so I have perspectives and experiences and I take on the world that is is vastly different than when I was a young man. You know, people ought to expect that their faith is going to be challenged. I want it to be challenged because the faith that they have is often very naive and uninformed. Now, I'm a, I'm a philosophy major, so maybe here again I'm not as empathetic as I ought to be for those who don't have a tolerance for open questions and having numerous different points of view on something and being able to assess and weigh as best a person can. And it's okay if a person can't find a full answer. But I have little patience with the person who's had numerous spiritual experiences and simply decides to disregard them in their journey. That doesn't make a lot of sense to me.
0: Yeah, understandable. All right. Um, let's shift directions here a little bit. I kind of want to just kind of go towards... Well, let's let's start here. So, like I mentioned earlier, you, you've been really active in what I'll call the Mormon intellectual circles. Uh, so it's not necessarily you know, the mainstream things or the things you're going to necessarily put, pick up a desert book or something like that, um, just kind of like, you know, the the deeper, not deeper, like doctrine deeper, but deeper, like intellectual thinking, scholarly level. What made you start being active in that? Was that during your college years or?
1: It was a natural outgrowth of my interests. When I was uh, at BYU, I was always going to my professors and, and asking questions that, uh You know, they'd look at me and say, what you need is a good doctoral program or something like that, (laughs) so that you can address those issues responsibly. As a result, while I was on my mission, I was able to pick up, I studied Latin, Egyptian, and Hebrew. And so when I came home, I had a working knowledge and could read those and do research in them. And uh, I, I remember I wrote a paper on the book of Abraham and its relationship to The Testament of Abraham and uh, the Book of Dead, chapter 125, uh, vignette that illustrates that, that had been used in the Testament of Abraham to illustrate Abraham's visions. And, uh, you know, suggesting that the papyri, in fact, came from the period of about uh, 100 well, 200 to about BC to about 100 AD. And that during that period, the Jews actually did use the Egyptian papyri that some of the very Egyptian papyri that Joseph Smith used to illustrate Abraham's visions. And I was completely taken aback by the apocalypse of Abraham, which seemed to me to have some very close parallels to the book of Abraham. And so I wrote a paper for a religion professor. And, uh, you know, it was just one of these religion papers I'd already written. It wasn't for the class, but he required a paper for the class, and I had already written one. So I handed it to him as my class assignment, you know, but I had a a uh, thirty-page paper when he required a five-page paper, and it was on a subject that, of course, you know, assumed that a, a person could speak a number of languages, and, and he got it, and he started circulating it to a bunch of religion professors, and very quickly the word got around. You know, we've got a we've got a kid here who's kind of a weirdo. I was all the time getting invited to to talk. I also did a an article as an undergrad, clothed upon that I published in BYU Studies. I think it was Truman Madsen who suggested to Hugh Nimbley that he ought to hire me as a research assistant. Then I became a TA to Truman Madsen. I became a TA to David Paulson, who were in the philosophy department. And while I was there, you know, I just made a lot of friends and and I was very active in in doing research. And I was, BYU was the perfect place for me at that time. I loved being there. I went to all of the firesides. I went to all of the concerts. I went to all of the dances. I uh, I just loved BYU, and and I loved life. It was a fun time for me. Not to say that later isn't a fun time. It's just that I enjoyed that that period of my life. And then when I went to law school, I uh, was assisting Sterling McBurn to teach philosophy classes. And you know, I uh, was still doing uh, a number of issues in philosophy. My issue in philosophy, by the way, my I probably ought to say that my. My uh, interest in in uh, neuropsychology was always the mind-body problem, and that is simply the problem... Well, there are a whole bunch of, it's, of interrelated problems, but it's basically the problem of if everything we do is a result of a collocation of molecules in our brains over which we have no control, how could we possibly be free? How could we have more responsibility? How could we even be persons, for that matter? I I was just very, very interested in... And all of those kinds of philosophical issues, and did an immense amount of research uh, as much as I could on those kinds of issues as well. So I had I had a number of philosophical interests that I I wanted to pursue um, because I was just fascinated by the questions. I was fascinated by the issues, and and I was blessed to be able to in you know, philosophy read the best minds addressing those questions that that I had. And how how they addressed them and very quickly became aware that there were, you know, dozens of different points of view to answer that question and became very aware that the most basic question about the most basic thing of what we most basically are couldn't really be answered, certainly not by science. And so I'm very comfortable with ambiguity and answers where there's no definitive answer, but just a number of points of view and some that are more and some that are less satisfying to me. And so when it comes to those same kind of issues um, with the church, I'm very comfortable with having just a number of open possibilities, some of which are more satisfying for me and some of which are not, but just remaining open to possibilities.
0: It's a good way to look at it, I imagine. So, well, I'm curious, uh, because I'm not from that generation when a lot of this started, but going back, there's a lot of things that looks like Mormonism kind of moved their intellectuals kind of to the fringe a little bit, because we start seeing, I mean, I, I know this started a lot earlier, there's dialogue, but then Sunstone came along, and other kind of, I you could, depending on who you talk to, dare say heretical, you know, takes on Mormonism, depending on how orthodox you are, or, you know, the deep thinkers of it, um, did you, were you part of a development of that kind of thing, or was that already there for you, or... Well, that's that, look, your view, come about? Just
1: early on in the church during the, the 1912 period. There, you had a number of, of students for their first time going back east to college, University of Chicago, Harvard, and so forth. There were a number of professors that were let go at uh, the Brigham Young Academy. Uh, one of my favorites, as a matter of fact, William Chamberlain. And then you had the philosophy department of BYU that was dissolved in the uh, early nineteen sixties because of the agitation created by the philosophy's professors. When I when I got into philosophy at BYU they had just kind of reorganized the philosophy department in the religion department and, you know, they wanted to make it impossible to graduate in philosophy. So I was well aware that there had there had been this kind of a tension from time to time between but there is always this kind of a tension in every religion. There is a tension between what I will call fundamentalists and and other the scholars. You see it in in uh, mainstream Christianity. It exists, um, for instance, among evangelicals and the more liberal churches in Protestant Christianity. You see it within the Catholic Church itself, uh, which is, in my opinion, nearly torn itself apart over these issues. And, you know, with Vatican II and the reforms that have been made. And then you get a retrenchment. The last pope, by the way, was part of that retrenchment. And, and, and the same kind of, of uh, strains exist in Islam. And so anytime you get a religion of the book, which includes the three major religions, uh, Islam, Judaism, and Christianity, you're going to have this kind of a propositional understanding of religion based upon the text itself. And people who want to safeguard the worldview presented in the text as the sacred worldview, uh, which becomes possible for most people because a worldview that existed, for instance, uh, in the second millennium BC is not going to be one that works in a scientific age. It seems to be.
0: Yeah, very true. So, what was your first outside of college, and you know, just doing papers for professors? What was your what did you get published in first? Did you do like Dialogue or Sunstone?
1: My first publication was actually BYU Studies. It's a a paper called "Clothed Upon, which is kind of a recreation of the LDS Temple Endowment using ancient sources.
0: Well, it's still a pretty mainstream thing. When did you decide to, you know, I don't know. I just remember growing up and you subscribed to Sunstone. We didn't know what it was. I remember mom was a little like, I don't know. No, those those are the iffy people. It's kind of a scary thing. But you're like, no, these are my people, basically.
1: I I never was afraid of somebody who had a different view than I did. And I thought the people at Sunstone were interesting, at least at the time, because they were faithfully, many of them, exploring Mormonism and exploring the kinds of questions that I had. Um, I've ceased to have any interest in Sunstone because they're not really exploring any of the issues that I have an interest in at this point.
0: All right. So, what do you feel? Other, obviously, with these books we're going to talk about, um, and I have something in mind here. But what do you feel have kind of been your most popular papers, or your most influential ideas or theories?
1: Um, I would say that the Book of Mormon, as an expansion of an ancient document, is probably one of the most influential. Which is an explanation of the Book of Mormon as an expansion using, you know, within the categories of thought that Joseph Smith used and with freedom as a, of a prophet to expand and explain a text. And, and my theory is that this kind of expansion is inherent in the very nature of the revelation that constitutes the Book of Mormon. The Book of Mormon was not translated from one language to another in the sense that we use the word translation today. Uh, because it's very clear that Joseph Smith didn't know the language of the Book of Mormon from which it was translated. He didn't translate it, and it wasn't translated. I don't buy into the theory that that was promulgated primarily by by David Whitmer. There were others that said this, but they were not, in my opinion, they were not personal eyewitnesses to the entire story of the Book of Mormon's translation. But I never believed the, that uh, words appeared in the stone and Joseph Smith just dictated them. Uh, that that doesn't make any sense of what we actually know about the Book of Mormon uh, translation and its and the process of translation. I presented in that paper a theory of, of revelation as co-creative participation, uh, where inevitably the prophet's scope of vocabulary, his worldviews, his ability to express himself, were all limiting factors on what could be expressed. And the Book of Mormon is a translation of, in the sense that it is a revelation of an ancient text rather than a translation of an ancient text. The same thing that we find with the Book of Moses, the same thing that we find with the Parchment of John that was translated in section, uh, in the sections of the Doctrine and Covenants, and the same thing that we find with the Book of Abraham. It's all a, uni- a very unified theory of everything that Joseph Smith did in producing texts uh, of scripture.
0: Later on, maybe down the line a bit, I actually would like to do maybe one at least or a few episodes just on that theory because yeah, I think I was looking through your stuff and I think that's probably one of the. I mean, they're all good, obviously, but you know, one of the more influential that a lot of people talk about on forums that I see even t- to today.
1: Let me add that I also think that my arguments um, against the compatibility of free will and foreknowledge have been very influential as well.
0: Well, that's isn't that sort of part of these books?
1: Yeah, it's the first volume, essentially.
0: So that's what we're going to go over here in the next few episodes. All right, so you're, you know, for several years, you've been writing articles and just kind of doing this. But, you know, you're not necessarily a, a full-time scholar like a lot of people doing these kind of things. You're still a full-time lawyer. so. What kind of is the journey you took to being that kind of participant into saying, I'm going to write me some books? (laughs) Well,
1: actually, here's how it worked. I would study something intensely, and the chapters would kind of organize themselves in my mind overnight, and then I would sit down and write them down just to clarify my thoughts. I would reason them through, I would think about them, and then when I wrote, I would clarify my thinking on the subject and put it into a logical argument and look at the way the premises worked in terms of logic. And remember I've taught formal logic and so oftentimes I would put it into logical notation or one of the various logical systems to be able to go through the argument. I didn't do that in the book because that's, that's only accessible to a a fraction of a fraction of a fraction of people who are in philosophy even. So uh, that's how the books came about I would say that I would say that they were simply effortless on my part, really, because it was just a matter of what I just did. It was a part of what I was interested in studying, and when I sat down and wrote it out to kind of think it through, that the chapters are what came out.
0: All right. Was it was it kind of like I mean you know papers are one thing, but I don't know. I have this kind of archetype of the. I don't know, the, the closet author that is always dreaming like one one day I'm gonna write my book. I'm I'm gonna write that that great book that everyone has in them. Did you I don't know, what made you finally take the leap to say, you know what, I'm gonna do this? Was there any changes in your life that were kind of, you know, empowering at that time? Like, you know what, now's the time and I've wanted to have you did you want to do it for a while, for example, or was it
1: Actually I haven't written that book yet. The the, the book that you're talking about is a book of my life experiences told through my story my storytelling but uh no these books were were just a part of my working through and thinking things through i did a, a first draft that was used as a text and a philosophy class at byu and it was in this it was put together as a syllabus to work through the various issues in the first volume and then greg cofer came to me he heard that i had put together this text and I just thought of it as kind of a syllabus where I gave the text to the students, and he wanted to publish it, so we took and kind of cleaned it up and published
0: it. So, just for the audience, so Greg Hoford is a a book publisher, from, and he does like philosophy stuff for Mormons, that kind of thing. Is that?
1: Yeah, yeah. He's really the one who wanted to publish it. He uh, he took a big risk. I was the, it was the first book he published, and I told him, I said, you know, really, there there are so very few people who have a background in philosophy who can grasp this stuff from writing for future generations here. And I don't know if anybody's even going to buy the book. Um, as as it turned out, the books have been very popular. But, um, you know, I I wrote the books because they simply flowed out as part of my work of the thinking that I was doing the way that I thought.
0: All right. Um. And like I mentioned, like obviously, you know, you published the first one way back in – 2001 and they've at least the three main ones in the Exploring Mormon Thought series have been out for a while but how over time as you did publish them has the series kind of evolved from your original vision? Because I was actually listening to some Sunstone Symposium author meets critics and you had mentioned that you wanted you know you the first two books were what they were and then you actually wanted the full third to be Fire on the Horizon. I know you actually did of God of Gods before maybe you wrote it simultaneously, but like how how has it changed from your original vision of it, or did you have an original vision
1: no that's that's right originally um fire on the horizon was going to be a more complete development of Mormonism following Martin Buber's thought and Soren Kierkegaard's thought, and um I realized that I would be untrue to both of them in their philosophical. Um, endeavors. Uh, you need to understand that that everything that Kierkegaard did, he well, not everything. Most of his works are in, engage in what's known as indirect conversation.
0: So, who's this? Kierkegaard's a, a philosopher.
1: He's a Danish philosopher, and he wrote a number of works under different pseudonyms and from different perspectives. Okay, and he adopted a perspective, and the reason he adopted a perspective is that, given his philosophical view, you. One cannot directly talk about the truth. one has to hint at the truth, point to the truth and and in a way, bring a person to be in truth, but one cannot directly speak the truth <laughs> okay and so he he did it that way. Martin Buber engaged in in a more direct form of analysis, but even there, I knew that that the way to engage it in it in what he was doing had to be less didactic, and and more in the form of uh, really kind of a a personal assessment, if you will. So, you know, Fire on the Horizon really didn't fit in with the analytic way of doing things that I was doing them in the three volumes. And so, um, as I was doing it, I hadn't planned on writing of God and Gods as a part of of the series, but I became more interested. There was a good deal of work being done on the social trinity at the time, and on the Trinity, it is that reflects kind of the study and work that I did on those issues. And it just kind of flowed out naturally the same way the other two volumes did. And so I had written the first part of Fire on the Horizon. And then I did, of and of God and Gods was intentionally written as a book. It's really the only one that was intentionally written as a book. I knew it was going to be a book when I was writing it, in other words, and not just my method of study and, and kind of thinking things through. But it was also reflective, because what would happen is the same way. I would study uh, something intensely, and then I would get up with all of the notes organized in my mind. I would organize in my thinking how I thought about it. I would organize how I wanted to present the arguments, and then I'd just sit down and write them. And it didn't take that long.
0: When did you find the time? Because you you have, uh, you know, you're a lawyer, full-time job, and... That's more than just your eight-hour day generally, so when did you do this? I have
1: kids and a a wife who actually likes to be with me, at least I think she
0: does.
1: (laughs) I would between about 10 o'clock in the evening after the kids went to bed and two in the morning just sit down and and get in front of the computer and Mm -hmm.
0: write. That's dedication right there. (laughs) No,
1: no, it was – I had to do it before I could go to sleep. I needed to get it out of my mind so that I could sleep.
0: (laughs) All right. That makes sense. (laughs) (laughs)
1: if I had it all organized and put on paper, I could just put it to rest. That's why you never saw me doing it.
0: Makes sense. Well, you know, (laughs) I feel guilty, but I I was kind of oblivious about that time. You know, I was in high school, so I was doing my own thing.
1: (laughs) (laughs) And you were doing it well, too, so it's okay.
0: (laughs) (laughs) All right. Like I said, I'm going to try to bring these to, you know, the concepts in the book to your average person, but when you were putting these out, who... Who was kind of your intended audience? Because you you knew that, you know, it's deep it's not a light read, let's say. And so who was your intended audience at the time? And do you still see that as the same audience? Or do you do you think that these concepts are open to the average person as long as they, you know, put their mind to it, or is it is it just too hard for a lot of people?
1: Well, my intended audience was an upper level philosophy course class of students.
0: Alright. Well, hopefully we can we can bring it not I don't want to kind of sense I bring it down, but you know, for me, like if I can bring it down to my level, I think then I think that most people can understand it, and I, I think that people will find it a lot more interesting than they ever realize that this could be, and there's a lot more to these concepts than just kind of the, the basics that we think about once a week, maybe. Well, I was looking over your stuff on your website. Well, oh, by the way, he has a website, Um Other than the books that are for sale there. You can find every single thing that Blake has, or I'll just call him my dad, has ever published right there on his website for free. You just go look at it. It's pretty awesome. I've been going through it the last couple of weeks, and it's good stuff.
1: Yeah, actually, there are quite a few things I've published that aren't there. They probably should be there.
0: But okay, well, a large, a large portion of them.
1: <laughs> yeah. So, for instance, the stuff that I published in religious studies, the book reviews that I did. There are a number of, of uh, papers that have been published that don't appear there. Um, exactly why I haven't put them on is I don't know, but, the, you know, I, I basically put things up there as people have asked for them, so.
0: Okay. Well, I mean, it's just pretty cool that they're all out there, I think. It's, it's pretty useful. All right. So, around the time that your second book came out, I think pretty just after it, you were pretty active on a blog that was called, or I think it's still around, it's called New Cool Thing, and you were just, I don't know, there was pages and pages and pages of forum banter around that time, so what kind of drew you to that particular forum? And I've noticed you haven't been active there in quite a while, and no one has, and something that was pretty cool just kind of went away. So what, in your opinion, what kind of happened to that place, and what made it good for you at that time?
1: Well, I thought it was a wonderful place to kind of run ideas by people and, and see their take. I would uh, propose some of the ideas that either had just been published in my books, and you would go over them and, and discuss those, or things that I was thinking about. Others would do the same kind of thing. I was not the only one posting blogs there. I intend to go back and take those posts, by the way, and put them together in a book form.
0: Yeah, you should, because there's, like said, on your, I think, specifically your... Compassion theory of atonement. There's at least a book's worth of comments there.
1: So <laughs> that's exactly right. They're good comments. the The people there um, who are commenting and posting and agreeing or disagreeing are intelligent people. And what I like most about it is we were discussing within the context of of believing people. We were believers. You know, if we had somebody show up who said all oh, this is crap, we would just say, you know, appreciate your comments. Uh, now die. And, <laughs> You know, just it 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 was believers working through issues at a at a very accountable and and educated level, which was very interesting to me. What finally happened to it, I can tell you, um, I think I was the primary blogger. I could be wrong, but I think I was. And it got to a point where your mom, (laughs) there was a, a particular point. In fact, I tell this story. In my second volume, your mom came in and she said, "I could use some help, get you know putting getting the kids to bed." and I remember thinking to myself, "I'm writing a book on divine love, what could be more important than that and then I began to chuckle to myself at the horrific self-deception that that had to be, <laughs> and I put I, I stopped writing the blog immediately and went and helped her with the kids. And it dawned on me that I was putting so much time into doing this that she would come in and she wanted to talk to me more. She wanted more of my time. And I was shortchanging her so that I could spend time doing these other things. And as much as I enjoyed them, I actually wanted to spend my life with her. And so I chose to stop doing that and to make myself more available to her.
0: Hey, practicing what you preach, a novel idea there. All right. (laughs)
1: I'm sure she would have a different perspective about how available I
0: was. By the way, well, still. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So I mean, I mean, that at least from what I could gather, it was a like a vibrant, good forum, and you know, it proved that you know, online you can find these kind of groups that go together. So, what role do you think that social media plays now for kind of the more, let's say, enlightened Mormonism? And do you think? Facebook is a useful in this conversation or has it just become basically a yell fest where no one's really open to persuasion and they just kind of seek to find an echo chamber for their own feelings and the worldview, which is, I know that's sometimes that
1: <laughs> Facebook is not a, it's not a responsible forum for responsible discussions. In my view, it, it doesn't lend itself to actual thoughtful discussions because if you were to publish, you, I mean, you can put a whole article On a link, I don't think people read those very often. Um, The arguments that are there are most often banal. They're not worth wasting time on. I find Facebook to be mostly useful for keeping in touch with people that I really love and care about and and letting them know I love and care about them. And any time that somebody wants to get into a religious discussion or a political discussion, it usually turns into a flame war where people create enemies rather than friends, and I just don't like doing that.
0: That's a good point. I I don't know. I, that's why I think, at least for me, podcasts seem to be a currently kind of a, a what I say, a healthier form, just that usually the people, since you have to actually, it's not exactly face-to-face, but you have to engage with them on, with you know, with an actual person that's going to respond to you, it has more civil discourse that's generally more useful people are usually more open to you know hearing the actual ideas rather than just trying to say your ideas really loud and mic drop and get out of there you know yeah
1: well i there's a lot to be said for that at the same time it's an incredible investment of time for a person to sit down and listen to a podcast
0: generally depends on how long it is this one's about as long as i want to make it so um well anyway so Thanks for being with me now and like this I said this is just kind of a get to know you for the normal podcast We're we're going to go over these issues in these in the books and I think you'll find it lightning uh so next time we're going to start on the first chapter of the attributes of God and I look forward to that discussion with you then
1: Well let me thank you I'm I I'm, what impresses me most is that you you think I'm interesting enough to do this with and I'm I'm flattered by it <laughs> so I love you. We'll talk to you later. Bye bye.